Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. So before I dive into reading, I've got a question for you. How many of you have ever been on a scavenger hunt? Anybody here ever been on? See, most of you. Aren't they fun? It's kind of fun to to look for something and, and follow clues and try to figure out all these little items that you're trying to, to find. Follow-up question. How many of you have ever heard of a gentleman named Forrest Fenn? Anybody here heard of Forrest Fenn? I wouldn't have expected that you'd have heard about him necessarily. We'll put a picture of him up. Maybe you'll recognize him. Anybody recognize this gentleman? Well, Forrest Fenn, back in October of 2010, did something very interesting. He, he wrote a book called Thrill of the Chase. And it's about a very unique kind of scavenger hunt, I guess you'd say. You see, Forrest Fenn is a very wealthy gentleman. He started a career many, many years ago in the antiquities business. And over the years, he's made connections all over the world, collecting antiquities and uh, done quite well for himself, apparently become a multimillionaire. In 2010, Forrest Fenn decided that he wanted to give away a million dollars of his own money in a very unique way. So he went out, being an antiquities dealer, bought a $25,000 treasure chest, and started piling some of his collectibles, very expensive collectibles, his, his favorite bracelet from ancient times, uh, old collectible pieces of gold, uh, jewelry. And he just piled the, these all in this treasure chest. And, and in this book, Thrill of the Chase, Forrest Fenn tells the people who read this book that he has taken that treasure chest and buried it somewhere. And the beauty of the book is you can actually find a poem in the book that has clues in it that you can follow so that you can find this million-dollar treasure chest. Anybody up for that? The interesting thing is, four years after publishing that book, no one, and there apparently have been thousands of people looking for this treasure chest, trying to follow these clues. No one has found it yet. It's still out there for you to find. And, and it's become such a thing now that there's a website about it. And Forrest Fenn, just a few months ago, followed it up with a second book, providing some photos, some extra clues, uh, some, some other things to help people actually find this treasure. Because apparently, Fenn actually wants the treasure to be found. And there have been all kinds of explanations. There's actually a gal who's also got a very popular website, and she claims that it's not an actual spiritual man. Physical treasure, get people to go on a spiritual quest, and that all the clues are about that. And she explains how the, how the clues play out and, and how she went on her own spiritual journey as she was searching for what at first she thought was a treasure chest filled with gold and jewelry. And instead came away uh, a changed person. Interesting, huh? Interesting because would you be willing to this question? What? Go and try to find that thing, that treasure. So, so that going and found it, you would have found something that absolutely changed your life going forward. See, a lot of people are chasing this million-dollar treasure chest of fence because they think that's life-changing money. If I found that treasure chest, everything going forward would be different for me, much better, because I could afford the things that I want and enjoy and especially need. And it's interesting because on this website I mentioned before, there are actually stories of people who have hunted for Fenn's treasure chest and have tried to find it and, and just how they go about that. Some of them kind of just dip their toe in the water a little bit. Some of them 
start devoting their own resources to the treasure hunt and vacation time and try to carve out as much time without giving up their life that they have. They try to carve out as much time and opportunity as they can to go looking for Fenn's million-dollar treasure chest. But others, interestingly, have set everything aside in the desire to find this treasure chest. Now, what got me thinking about this is our account from today of the wise men. And as I thought about Fenn's treasure chest and the wise men and this question, what would I be willing to drop everything for so that I could go search for it in the hopes that if I found this thing, this treasure, it would be truly life-changing? I thought to myself, isn't that exactly what the wise men did? Literally, one of the questions I had just never asked myself before is, I wonder if the wise men had family back in Babylon, back in the east where they were from. I wonder if they had friends. I wonder if they had businesses. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the wise men and what they did. But... Whatever all that was that they had in Babylon where they came from, they dropped it all, left it all behind so that they could go on their treasure hunt in search for the king of the Jews. And I find this question so compelling and so interesting because if you bring it up to today, really, this is an important question for us to ask. Jesus calls the gospel and salvation the pearl of great price. That if you find that pearl, literally he says in that parable, you'd you'd sell everything else in order to be able to get that pearl of great price. And I think it's a compelling question for us to ask ourselves, do we have that thing in our life? That literally we're willing to push everything else aside for in order to have that thing like the wise men did. So in order to answer that question today, let's let's dive into Matthew chapter 2. And we'll read starting with the first two verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's talk a little bit about these magi. So you probably heard the term magi and wise men used interchangeably. And that's because magi were actually a formal class, a cast of individuals in Old Testament times. We find them maybe mainly in in Babylon and Assyria, uh, a vast land and at one time a vast empire to the east and to the north of Israel. And the reason we know a little bit about these magi is because once when God was disciplining the children of Israel, uh, 600, 500 years before Christ was born, God finally got fed up with the Israelites' idolatry and their refusal to love him in return for all the vast love that he had first showed them. And he keeps sending all these prophets to remind them, come back to me, stop worshiping other gods. And finally he says, I guess the only way that I can hope to make this point is to send you into exile, which he did. And they were exiled. First Israel was exiled into Assyria, then later on uh, Judah, the little smaller little brother of, of Israel, but where the, the temple and, and Jerusalem were. They were also exiled some years later into Babylon, who had taken over the Assyrian Empire. During that time, those Jews who were in exile began to rub shoulders with the Babylonians and the Assyrians. You've probably heard, for example, of a young man named Daniel. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe not. Maybe this is your first time to hear about Daniel. But if you read the Old Testament, there are some quite 
interesting stories about this young man and his friends. For example, he had three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who literally got thrown into a fiery furnace and were rescued and didn't even smell of smoke when they came back out uh, because God rescued them. Daniel himself was thrown into a lion's den because he wouldn't commit an act of idolatry by worshiping the emperor. But what we learn from the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his friends actually became part of this, this cast, this group of individuals known as Magi. And I'm sure as they were part of this group of wise men, which, let me explain a little bit about what they did. These were men who were scientists, but it's also the word, by the way, which we get the word magician from. So back in the day, as you know, for example, chemists were also alchemists, meaning they would do things that we wouldn't consider very scientific today. Uh, They would say certain incantations over one element, hoping that through the power of this incantation, they could change iron into gold. But they also ran scientific experiments, things that we would be very familiar with in science. So they were sort of a blend, I guess you could say, of science and magic. And and these magi did a lot of studying because they were very interested in prophecy. One can easily see that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as as they were living with the magi, interacting with them, becoming part of them, that they had a chance to share all the prophecies about a coming king of the Jews who would redeem not just the Jews, but actually the entire world from sin. You see, by the time of Daniel, you already have the writings of, for example, Isaiah. And Isaiah had gotten very specific about what this Messiah would look like. In fact, if you read in the book of Isaiah, it's almost like reading a history of Jesus in some chapters, point by point. And so they, they had shared these prophecies. Now, fast forward 500 years, roughly. And here are these magi from Babylon, descendants of the ones that Daniel had shared the gospel with. And they're searching for the king. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So isn't it interesting what these magi do? They drop everything and leave it all behind. I think it's pretty clear what their answer to the question I posed to you earlier was. If... If we hear that this king of the Jews has been born, we need to literally drop everything, leave our families behind, leave our businesses behind, leave our friends behind, and trek what would have been hundreds of miles on foot. And let's go see if we can find this person. Now, can you imagine doing that? And yet that's exactly what these guys did. And here's why it's important. Let's take a look at the next verse from Acts chapter 17. From one man, he, you can jot in God with your pen there because that's the he. From one man, God made all the nations, all of us. Why did he make us? Here's what he says. Here's why. That they should inhabit the whole earth. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, he had said, Be fruitful and multiply. And he marked out their appointed times in history. What does that tell you? He's created all of us. Why are you living here today? Why are you in this church today? God would say, I planned it all out. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why are you not only living now, but why are you living Here in Phoenix, where you can attend a church like Crosswalk. God did this. Now, why did God do this? So that they, meaning we, 
would seek him. We underline those words. And perhaps reach out for him. Underline those words. And here's the most important words. And find him. Why did God place the Magi in Babylon where they could hear those prophecies about Jesus at that time? In the book of Acts, we learn that he placed those wise men there so that they could do exactly what they did. Seek Jesus and find Jesus. Why did God place you here now? And part of the answer to this question of what's, what's worth dropping everything for is who's providing that thing that we're going to drop everything for. And, and this verse, Acts 17, is saying God has provided something for you that you might want to think about dropping everything else for and really focusing on seeking it and finding it Because you're reaching out for it. And then I want you to see this promise. There's a beautiful promise here. And it relates to this question. What about those people that that don't have... They're so far away. Just like the... By the way, have you ever thought about this? The wise men were actually very far away from where Jesus was born. And we often ask that challenging question. What about those people who live so far away? From the centers of Christianity. Look at what God says. And and this might be something that you have to take on faith. Though he is not far from any one of us. The beauty of that promise is that. God is actually saying. When we seek him. When we reach out for him. He wants us to find him because he's really not all that far from you, not nearly as far as you might assume. It's a huge faith-building promise to hear these words. He is not far from any one of us, no matter where you stand today. Maybe you came into the church today never having heard about Jesus. I was once there. Maybe you came into the church having heard a few little things here or there about Jesus. Maybe you came to church today having heard tons of stuff about Jesus. You might have grown up with Jesus. But wherever you are, this is God's promise to you. He is not far from any one of us. Isn't that beautiful? So here's the first point I'm trying to make. Write this in. Christmas is a great time to follow the clues and seek your king. You see, these magi, for sure, if they had heard these Old Testament prophecy prophecies, they had some clues from that prophecy. They knew that Jesus was going to be born from the Jews, that he would be born from the tribe of Judah, that he would be David's descendant, that that he would be born in Bethlehem, even though they didn't figure that out. There were some people who had that figured out, as we're about to hear. And there was even a prophecy that this Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a virgin. So there were a lot of clues that they had in Old Testament prophecy for them to follow. And they began to seek their king and the king of the Jews on the basis of those clues. So they arrive at Jerusalem, and here's what happens next. When King Herod heard, th- heard this, namely that they were looking for someone who was born king of the Jews, he was disturbed. Circle that word. That's going to that's gonna play in very importantly. He was disturbed. In, in the original language, it means he was all stirred up. He got all agitated about it. But not just him, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the chief priests, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. These chief priests and teachers of the law, these were the best and the brightest among the Jews. They spent day and night studying God's word, looking over those prophecies, trying to discern 
what God's will was for the people so that they could guide, teach, coach, and direct them, but also so that they could discern what God's plan for the salvation of people was, how sin was going to get addressed, how salvation was going to be planned and carried out. That's what these guys did. They were sort of sort of like pastors. And they, they studied, one of their big jobs was to copy the scripture because all scripture, there were no printing presses. It had to be hand copied. Now, can you imagine how well you would get to know your Bible if you were forced every day to sit down and literally hand copy it word for word for word? And once you finished your first copy, guess what you did next? Start all over. Genesis 1-1, right? Copy it again. Imagine how well you'd know your Bible. And so that's what these guys did. And then you have to think about it. Where's Jesus going to be born? I got that. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah... For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, these guys had to be good. I told you that Forrest Fenn has written a poem. And and people have to try to figure out, because Forrest Fenn is known as a, a master of double meaning, double entendre. Even though God was not using double entendre to, to ever try to fool people, Prophecy is of such a nature that sometimes it's a little bit cloudy what the meaning of it is. These guys had to study their scriptures over and over again so they could be clear about what God was prophesying. And so they had come across this verse. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that's pretty clear. There's going to come a king one day, and he's so special. I'm mentioning him here in this prophecy. I've sent a prophet to you to tell you about this king. And where you can look for him to be born is Bethlehem. Now, when Herod hears this, he gets agitated, as it says, all stirred up. And, and here's the reason why. Herod was actually a very complex gentleman. He was not really even a Jew. He was an Idumean, which was a cousin tribe of the Jews. The the Idumeans had originally been known as the Edomites. They were the descendants of Esau. Now, descendants of Esau were also descendants of Abraham, as the Jews are descendants of Abraham, the father of all the Jews. But the Edomites were descendants of Abraham through Esau, Whereas the Jews were descendants of Abraham through Jacob, who later came to be known by his new name, Israel. So these were, they considered themselves to be cousins. And so this is why it was acceptable to some degree for a non-Jew to become king of the Jews. And at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because it was the Romans who were occupying at this time of Jesus' birth that appointed Herod to be king of the Jews, probably in their Gentile mind thinking, hey, these people are cousins. There's no real difference between the Idumeans and the Jews. He can be their king. And he sets out on the one side. Remember I said he's complex. He sets out to prove himself to the Jews. And he really wants the people to accept him and love him. And so one of the first things that he's very famous for in 25 BC, there was a huge famine. It came to be known as the Great Famine, much as we talk about the original depression as the Great Depression. People had it in their memory for many, many years. Herod became famous for his kindness. He had all this gold and treasure in his palace as king. And he commanded that a bunch of that gold and treasure be melted down and sold and used to feed the less fortunate and the poor and the hungry. Now, can you imagine what that did for the people? Can you imagine if, if, if the Queen of England or our president said, sell all the stuff, we got to give it away to the poor? It would be a pretty impressive act on their part. And that's exactly what Herod did. He built... 
stadiums, massive stadiums. He built, he built racetracks for people to be entertained uh, with. He built entire cities, a port city called Caesarea that we later on hear about in the book of Acts, entirely built by Herod. He built these amazing fortresses so that the country could be defended. If you've ever heard of the story of Masada, which happens in 70 some AD, 77 or 79, that fortress on this massive cliff top was built by Herod. That was the one side. The greatest builder since King Solomon. The, the person who was kind and, and showed benevolence to the people. But Herod also had a very dark side. A very dark side. He was constantly jealous and envious. And he saw everyone who was around him as someone potentially trying to push him off the throne. And because he read everyone as attacking him and his throne personally, he could get at times very, very violent. Even sometimes against his family members. His wife was named Mariamne, and when he became convinced that she was after his throne, he had her killed. When there were any other people that he even much more distant than that, that he considered to, to be trying to grab his throne, he had them killed. You've heard of the biblical story that follows up on the birth of Jesus on this story where when the wise men don't return to Jerusalem, this Herod, this same king, sweeps into Bethlehem and has all the children killed. This man was was so paranoid and, and on this dark side so dark that when he knew he was going to die, he had all the prominent people of Jerusalem arrested and then gave a command that on the day that he died, all of them should be murdered and killed as well because he said, unless we do that, there won't be any grieving over the loss of me in Jerusalem, and I want to make sure there's crying and grieving in Jerusalem on the day of my death. So kill all these people because they won't grieve me, but they'll grieve them. Actual history. So this, this is the man who is stirred up. This is the man who is disturbed. And maybe that explains to you some of the things that go on later. Let's read the next verse. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We underline those words. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, what, what does that mean? Didn't we just say that... God put you in this time and in this place so that you would do what? Seek God. And now here in the book of Romans, he says, no one seeks God. So how do, how do you explain that? Well, here's, here's what we learn, and we see it clearly in Herod. You see, Herod doesn't go to seek out the king because he's jealous and he wants to be the king. The people are also stirred up. We heard that. They also, even these chief priests, teachers of the law, who spent all their time studying their Bibles, they must have heard why the question was being asked. They don't go. They're simply disturbed. Because perhaps they're thinking, well, that can't be our king because we've already had a king appointed for us. We want him. He's the one that will melt down the gold when we're poor. And I think that's so true even in our own lives that a lot of times the reason that we don't seek God, that really no one naturally, no one naturally seeks God is the age-old sin and temptation that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan said to Eve, don't you want to be like God? 
Don't you want to be in control of your own life? Don't you want to know good and evil just the way God does? Don't you, in other words, want to be king of your own life? Why bow down and worship some other king when you could be king? Or at very least, where the person that you've appointed and then that you know and like could be king. Why not rather do that? And that one sinful, really selfish thought that I could be king. In Herod's case, I must be king because I've got to have control. It's too frightening to give control away to someone, even God, by faith. I need to have my hands on the steering wheel of my life to feel safe and secure. That thought is what often prevents us from doing what the Magi did and and dropping everything in the search for God. It's not that God is very distant. We, We already heard him say, I'm not far from you. I want to be found by you. But here's where you have to start. With the humbling thought, I don't need to be king. And the person I think should be king not God, also doesn't have to be king because maybe there is a true creator who made all of this. Maybe there is a true sustainer who continuously keeps it sustained and operating out of his love for me. Maybe he's the king, whether I like it or not or want it or not. And maybe the true king should be king. It has to start with that humbling thought. The humbling thought that I'm not the king, I don't get to be the king, and I don't even get to elect the king. Because God is king. This is why no one seeks God, because of our innate natural desire to want to be king. And so it's truly amazing what the Magi do. There's only one way that they could have begun to seek Jesus. You know what that one way is? Those prophecies that they heard, they drew the Magi, not naturally, but supernaturally through the power of what we call the power of the word. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God, knocks on the door of our heart, enters into our heart and begins to call us and gather us and enlighten us. And that's what obviously had happened here to these magi. And so they began to search. And that's exactly what we want to see happen. What I hope you want to see happen to yourself as well. That as you interact, you come to church, you interact with these these beautiful good news gospel truths that we find in the Bible, that the Holy Spirit is busting down the door of your heart, entering in there and calling you, inviting you, gathering you, and saying to you, go seek Jesus. Reach out for him. Because he wants to be found by you. That's the beauty of what Christmas is really all about. And, and as, you, as you take this message home with you today, this is really the one thing that I, that I hope you'll start a whole new tra- tradition. There are so many Christmas traditions that we keep. What if we started a new Christmas tradition where every year we said, you know what? The wise men remind me that when the Holy Spirit knocks on the door of your heart, that changes your heart and you begin to do the most unnatural thing in the world. And that is seek God to be your king. And wouldn't it be cool if if every Christmas you and your family said, let's make this a Christmas tradition that we're going to renew called and gathered and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we are going to renew our search for the king. As a family, we're going to, in a sense, drop everything else and begin to look for the pearl of great price once again. Now that, that would be beautiful at Christmas time. So write this down, because here's the point that I was originally making Some of us get disturbed when we learn that we or someone we designate are not the king. And so that hinders us from seeking the king. Let's see what happens next. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, isn't the contrast here intriguing? It's just so interesting to me. Here are these magi who weren't even part of the people of God. They were not Jews who dropped everything in their life on the basis of these prophecies, ancient prophecies, and traveled how far? Hundreds of miles. Left everything behind in order to find the king, Jesus. And now you've got Herod. You've got the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Anybody want to guess? Six miles. And what do they say? Hey guys, glad you came. According to prophecy, you're supposed to find that king there in Bethlehem. You go. I'm a little busy. I've got a lot of things going on. Ruling a kingdom. There's a lot of people's needs and people to take care of. Scribes and Pharisees or scribes and teachers of the law are, you know, we're awfully busy copying these pages. Making sure that we're getting it right letter for letter. And teaching others about this Messiah who will one day come. We're a little busy to go search for him right now. And six miles? Come on. You go ahead. You search for him. If you happen to find him, maybe you could come back and tell us. You see where I'm going with this? How many of us have to confront that same attitude in our own hearts? The Magi went the distance. And sometimes we don't even want to start the race. And that's something that we absolutely have to confront in our own hearts. When it says in Romans, there is no one who seeks God, part of the reason for that is because we want to be king, but also part of it is just, you know what? I got too many distractions. I got too many other things I care about. I got too many needs I've got to attend to. We don't even step up to the starting line. Much less go the distance. And what if Christmas time every year for us was a time to reset and to say, you know what, this year, I want to go the distance for Jesus. I want to step up to the starting line and I want to start running the race. Because listen to this. Do you know who placed all these awesome clues around you so that you could follow them? Do, do you know, for example, who placed this beautiful creation? Y- yesterday on Facebook, a number of you posted pictures of how beautiful it was yesterday on your Facebook page. Now, how, who, can, who can even look at a Facebook picture like that and not have that thought cross their mind? There's got to be a creator. God did that so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. What about that little voice inside your heart, your conscience, that all of us have, unless we've just ground him into the dust, that pats us on the back when we do something good and and, kind of gives us a whop upside the head when we don't do something good. You ever heard that voice, conscience? And has it ever made you think, I wonder who put that... I wonder, wonder how come I know the difference between right and wrong and even get a feeling to reinforce that. You see, the Magi had all these prophetical clues to follow, but they also had some of these same clues that you and I have today to follow. And in order to follow them, they went the distance. But here's the beautiful thing. All those prophecies also taught something else. That God himself, because we are sinful, would go the distance for us. 
And that's, that's what I want you to motor on for just a second. Why do I stand up here and even ask you to go the distance for Jesus? So that you can be a better person? So that you can earn your way into heaven? So that, so that maybe one day, if you're lucky enough, you can find the treasure chest? No, nope, none of those. The why behind our going the distance, the why behind the wise men going the distance was that God himself has gone the distance for us. He's God. And he came all the way down here as a human being. In 201 class, I often tell people, if I were to ask you to volunteer to be a cockroach for 33 years, that wouldn't even be the distance. Like, that's a huge sacrifice. Anybody here want to volunteer to be a cockroach for 33 years? Right? Well, God becoming man is a far, 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 infinitesimally far more, more distant. And he did that. And he went the distance all the way to the cross. Gave up his life. So that you could be forgiven of all your sins. I could be forgiven of all my sins. And be redeemed. That's why we want to ask ourselves. Am I ready to go the distance? Am I ready to let Jesus be the king? And sacrifice any idea of my being king? Because I don't know. I want to pay the price that Jesus paid to be king. But Jesus did pay it, and he paid it out of his great love for you. Here's what it says, John 1, 11 to 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, and he's giving this right to you as you receive him, to become children of God through faith. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Write this down. Some of us want others to search for the king for us. Don't do that. The king came to search for you individually, personally, because he loves you. Sinner that you are, he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to be with him in eternity. And he paid the price to make that a reality. You are Jesus' focus. Ask the question this way. Not what would you, what what would be the treasure that you would give everything up for? Ask yourself this question. What was the treasure that Jesus gave everything up for? And the answer is me and you. Amazing. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they worshipped him. Now, that line, on coming to the house, is interesting because we don't have it up right now. It'll come up in just a second because he's got the passage up just the way he should have. Where, where are the wise men coming to in that picture? We're perpetuating a little bit of a myth here. Because actually the wise men, we don't even know if there were three or two or how many there were. But we do know that it took a little while for them to see that star and follow it on foot all the way from Babylon. They did not arrive at the stable or the manger where Jesus was born. As it says here... When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. By now, Mary and Joseph are moved in somewhere. They found a rental. (laughs) Maybe they lived in Levine. It's not all that hard sometimes. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their home country, to their country by another route. Now, this is where the gospel really shines forward. Because every one of those gifts that they bring as they come to worship their king 
has a meaning. By giving Jesus gold, they were saying, Jesus, you are our king. You are worthy of the most precious treasure that we can bring you, gold. By giving him frankincense, which is a form of incense, they were saying, Jesus, you are our God. Incense, you see, was burned in the, in the temple as a way of saying, may our prayers go up to God and smell sweet to him. By giving him incense, they were saying, you are the one to whom we pray, and we hope that our prayers will smell sweet to you. By giving him myrrh, myrrh was an aromatic resin that was used sometimes in perfumes, but mainly in embalming uh, chemicals. And it was also used as an antiseptic mixed with wine. It was actually offered to Jesus while he was on the cross to help him with his pain. This was pointing to the humanity of Jesus and to the fact that he would suffer and die for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine. Every one of those gifts. Now, did the Magi know that they were doing this? I I don't know. But certainly in hindsight, we can see that these gifts had deep, deep meaning. And they point to the fact that Jesus, true God, became true man to win our souls by dying on the cross, rising again. And through paying that price, he is our true king. And because he wanted us and loved us enough to do all of that, he is worthy of worship by us. And if I were to ask you, what would you be willing, even just this Christmas season, to begin to push some things aside for. Let, let's, not, let's not try to be magi all in one step. What if I just said to you, go home today and think about the clutter of Christmas, all the Christmas parties, all the present buying, all the stuff that you and I feel like we got to do that. And we, we think so much about Christmas as family time and giving time and Christmas party time. My question to you out of this message is, what would you now, knowing all that Jesus did in going the distance for you, remembering how much he loved and focused on you, what would you be willing to begin to pluck out this Christmas and say, I want to worship Jesus instead? That if I do one thing, just one thing this Christmas, and even had to give everything, if I had to give everything else up, I would not want to give up worshiping and thanking Jesus this Christmas for all he's done. Here's the question I want you to ask. What's the one thing? I want you to capitalize that word one. O-N-E. One thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else at Christmas will be easier or unnecessary. The answer of the wise men was, find Jesus and worship him. Find Jesus and worship him. And as they did that, they were really fulfilling the greatest commandment of the law. Hearing of Jesus' love and Jesus going the distance for them, they said, you know what? Let's serve and honor and worship the Lord our God only. Just like it is explained by Jesus. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So how can we get ready for Christmas so that we don't miss it? Today's text really suggests this answer. Focus. Underline that word, focus. What's the one thing? On following the clues to find and worship Jesus, your King and your God. Now you're going to have a beautiful opportunity, not only to do that yourself, but to lead others to do that on Christmas Eve, 3, 5, and 7 p.m. You're going to have a beautiful opportunity to do that next weekend as we once again prepare for Jesus' arrival in this Don't Miss Christmas um, series. So please focus on following the clues, finding Jesus, just as he focused on finding you, loving you, 
and winning your salvation as your king. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent your one and only son to be our savior. How amazed we are at the amazing love that caused you to send your son to go the distance for us. Lord God, now in response to your amazing love, the cross, the empty tomb, may we learn to imitate the Magi and really ask ourselves this question, what else can I push out of my life to create more space for finding the greatest treasure ever, the pearl of great price, and having found him, your son Jesus, to bow down and worship him. Lord, you've given us so much more than a treasure chest. You've given us salvation, forgiveness, true grace and mercy. Now, Lord, by your Spirit's power, motivate us to go the distance as your Son once went the distance for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. You know, I like to think sometimes there's just a word that, that tells the story so beautifully in just that one word. And I think today's message is focus. Jesus... God himself, from the moment Adam and Eve fell into sin, began to focus on you, your salvation, your forgiveness, your being in heaven. That's why all those prophecies, for for hundreds of years, God's focus has been on our salvation. And now the, the the story of the Magi is really saying, what's our focus on? Is our focus the same as the wise men? to find that king who won our salvation and our forgiveness and to worship him. If our Christmas this year could be about focus in the same way that God's focus is on us, well, that's going to be a beautiful and a successful Christmas. Let me send you out with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.